0: Tell you about Tiny Tim, you've got to admit he's one of the most unusual personalities to break out on the entertainment scene the past six or eight months, right? Uh, he's going out on concerts now and killing them. As I, I mentioned, the, the record Tiptoe Through the Tulips has sold over 100,000 copies since he was on the show last week and still on the charts. So uh, here is, uh, <laughs> make up your own minds, Tiny Tim. Thank you so much. Thank you so wonderful, everyone. And it's such a pleasure to be here tonight on The Johnny Carson Show. I'm so happy, oh happy-go-lucky oh me. i just come my way, living every day. In 1968,
1: after the album God Bless Tiny Tim was released, Tiny Tim was everywhere. His voice was all over the radio and his face was all over the TV. The world didn't know what to think about Tiny Tim. Some people saw his white makeup, long hair, and effeminate mannerisms and thought that he was one red rubber nose away from being a clown. Others, who were able to look beyond the makeup, saw an artist who was conjuring up the spirit of a forgotten era of popular music. But regardless of what people thought they were looking at, everyone agreed that when they watched Tiny Tim on stage, they were witnessing one of the most unique performers the world had ever seen. I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. I'm very excited to announce that Between the Liner Notes is now a member of the Goat Rodeo Podcast Network. First of all, I should tell you that the term Goat Rodeo does not refer to an actual rodeo. It's an expression that refers to a chaotic situation. Although the name is somewhat humorous, it does describe the world of podcasting right now. To me, Goat Rodeo is like an independent record label for podcasts. It has no ties to traditional media outlets, and it has no allegiances to large corporations. That means that when Goat Rodeo finds a new podcast it loves or discovers people it thinks are talented, even if they are unproven, Goat Rodeo can take a chance on them. There are no quarterly profit concerns or bureaucratic gatekeepers standing in the way of Goat Rodeo taking a risk on something new and following its gut. That's the kind of network where Between the Liner Notes belongs. You can find out more about them at GoatRodeoDC.com. Also, before we get back to Tiny Tim, I should warn you that this episode does contain some mild sexual content. So, if there are children in the room, you may want to listen with headphones. Tiny Tim's birth name was Herbert Corey. Corey is not spelled the way you're used to. It's actually spelled K-H-A-U-R-Y. His father was named Boutros Corey, and his mother was named Toyba Staff. People normally referred to Toyba by her nickname, Tilly. Boutros and Tilly were both American immigrants.
2: Tiny's mother, Tilly, was of Jewish, Polish descent, from Belarus originally. That's Justin Martel, author of the new biography, Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim. Tiny's father, Boutros, was from Beirut, Lebanon. He was a Maronite Catholic, and I believe his brothers who stayed in Lebanon were all Maronite priests.
1: As you can imagine, back in the 1920s and 30s, a Polish-Jewish woman dating a Middle Eastern Catholic was frowned upon. If that didn't raise enough eyebrows in the neighborhood, imagine what people thought when they heard how Boutros and Tilly met.
2: They met at a political lecture in the 20s here in the U.S. I later found out that this was a, I guess, a communist lecture, socialist lecture, and they, um, they sort of connected on that level and over their political views.
1: After dating a while, Tilly and Boutros moved into an apartment together located in a New York City neighborhood called Washington Heights. Washington Heights was a predominantly working-class Jewish neighborhood located on the northern tip of Manhattan. Tilly and Boutros moved in
2: together, but they didn't get married. The term free love, which I discovered in researching this book, actually originates from communist literature from the 20s. In the Soviet Union, as they were seeking to abolish marriage, and they subscribed to that. And as I was told by Tilly's niece, Rosalind Rabin, they were actually not married until just before Boutros died in the 70s. So they had a child uh, out of marriage, I suppose.
0: Baby, shoes, baby shoes.
2: So Tiny Tim, or
1: Herbert Corey, rather, was born on April 12, 1932, out of wedlock, and smack in the middle of the Great Depression. When Tiny was young, he witnessed his parents' proto-hippie lifestyle firsthand, quite literally, in fact. When he described his childhood home, he would always emphasize that his parents' bedroom didn't have a door. But as Tiny grew older, the ideals of socialism caved to the pressures of reality and the Great Depression. Free love morphed into frequent conflict.
2: Tiny's diaries are filled with these arguments and fights that he had with his parents and, you know, his mother, Tilly, was very frustrated in a lot of ways by Boutros and the fact that he was really not able to hold down a job. Her sisters and family sort of compounded those negative emotions by you know, constantly reminding her of Boutros's failure as a provider. And I think that she was similarly annoyed when her son started to... Show Boutros' more passive qualities rather than her own domineering qualities, you know, and she started to see that in her own son. And so I think she would sort of go on tirades, berating the two of them, and, yeah, it ultimately led to some violent arguments.
0: Before she part with her baby's shoes
1: People who were close to Tiny believed that much of his behavior was a rebellion against his mother. For example, she wanted him to grow up, get a job, and be a man. Tiny instead grew his hair long, wore makeup, and couldn't keep a job. Tiny also rebelled against his Jewish mother by embracing his father's Catholic faith. His love of Jesus and his desire to avoid sin was something Tiny talked about a lot, often publicly. Later in his life, he actually discussed it on Johnny Carson's TV show quite a bit. Embracing the Catholic faith also gave Tiny a method of coping with the anger he felt towards his parents by praying to God and talking to Jesus in his diaries. Prayer also helped Tiny deal with his troubled social life with the other boys in the neighborhood.
2: They teased him and I think sprayed things in his hair. and It got to the point where I think he started to avoid many of them. You know, he would try and walk on the other side of the street and this and that. And even way later in his life you know up until the point that he died he uh, like the a group of young boys would make him very nervous
1: to escape from the conflict in both his social and family life tiny tim spent more and more time alone in his bedroom with the door closed unlike his parents bedroom his did have a door while tiny was alone he would live inside his mind and dream up fantastic and crazy things For example, he invented dramatic radio shows and performed episode after episode in the radio studio in his mind. He also created his own mythology about romance, beauty, and a woman reminiscent of a Greek goddess. Tiny called this the eternal princess fantasy.
0: When they're old enough to know better, it's better to leave them alone.
2: So the Eternal Princess fantasy was a fantasy that he said he developed, I think, by the time he was like very young, five or six maybe, and basically just a girl who was the essence of beauty, that was young, that never grew old and that he would find her in a sort of Garden of Eden-type scenario. And as a kid, he went out uh, searching in the woods for her in New Jersey with a friend, and I think got lost, and Boutros had to go find them. Tiny Tim developed a unique attitude
1: towards romance. He treated women like they were mythical goddesses to be worshipped from afar. He began to behave with an almost medieval code of chivalry. And he was always careful never to touch the women he worshipped, at least in the beginning, because it might spoil the romantic fantasies he created in his mind. Also, he didn't want to be tempted to sin.
0: When they're old enough to know better, it's better to leave them alone.
1: Tiny Tim spent most of his life searching the world for his eternal princess. But when he wasn't dreaming of beauty that never aged or performing radio dramas in his mind... His internal world was consumed with music.
2: Tiny, as we know, was a walking encyclopedia of of turn-of-the-century music. He knew songs from the 1800s all the way up until he died in 1996, but his area of expertise was sort of the 1890s through, I would say, 1925, 1930, really um, before the electric microphone was invented, you know, the phonograph era. And that started when he was five years old and his father, Boutros, brought home a wind-up gramophone.
0: I have an old 99 photograph, and even then I actually stick my head in the hall, close out the lights, and hear the sounds of these singers and sentimentalize to the songs. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's like a vampire sucking blood from the past. Song entitled, O'Brien is trying to learn to talk Hawaiian. Done in 1900. And 16 by Mr. Horace Wright, Victor Records. O'Brien is trying to learn to talk Hawaiian to his heart.
2: In a time where you couldn't look up lyrics on the internet, he memorized all of them and had them all, all the lyrics to all the songs in a notebook. And it said that he knew thousands of songs. I think he said, you know the number was like 300 or something like that, but that number was much more. Um, Some people have estimated it was upwards of 10,000 songs.
1: Tiny Tim fell in love with a period of popular music that isn't well-remembered anymore. Many of the recording artists who became famous before the microphone was invented didn't have much of a career afterwards. Before the microphone, to record a song, a singer had to sing into a large metal horn that would vibrate a stylus and cut grooves into a rotating wax disc. The natural acoustics of the horn and the lack of electronic amplification made it so singers with loud, high-pitched, nasally voices recorded the best. When the microphone was introduced after World War I, high-pitched, nasally singers no longer sounded the best on recordings. The microphone responded nicely to soft, warm voices like Bing Crosby's. Pretty soon, high-pitched singers were no longer in vogue. But for Tiny Tim, that style of singing never went out of fashion.
0: who's influenced your singing style i mean uh well so many great artists in the past like in 1915 wonderful mr henry burr who's so great and and so spectacular why when they used to hear him in 1910 all the wonderful mothers on the old wind-up machine i used to listen and to and to put their ear next to the phonograph box when his Tones came out. Mr. Henry Burr had such a great influence on me then. And also... And that wound up on... a few mothers, huh? Oh. <laughs> and then Mr. Irving Kaufman, who also sang in that period. Now, those were some years ago, right? Oh, yes, in the early tens. Well, you just later supposed
1: on... to listen to the records. You're not the whole are you? Oh,
0: oh,
1: <laughs> Tiny Tim didn't just listen to music in his bedroom. He also learned to
2: perform it. The instrument he chose to accompany himself singing was kind of an odd choice. In the early years, he experimented with a number of instruments. You know, he had a guitar and he had an auto harp and played the violin a little bit. But, you know, the ukulele has had, um, it always sort of like fades in and out. So like the ukulele was popular in the 20s with um, Cliff Edwards, Ukulele Ike, and then it came back again in the 50s with Arthur Godfrey. Make it low. So Arthur Godfrey was on TV and he promoted a particular brand of ukulele and kind of liked it and his father noticed and bought him that brand of ukulele. And he sort of went back and forth between that and the guitar for a while, but I think the ukulele just became easier for him to carry around and accompany himself. And uh, he also said because he would go to Broadway auditions, he liked to accompany himself on the ukulele rather than have to ask for his sheet music back from the piano player after, you know, not being picked for a part.
1: After memorizing the lyrics to enough songs and rehearsing them in his bedroom, Tiny Tim worked up the courage to bring his ukulele up on a stage and perform in front of an audience. But he didn't quite get the reaction that he was expecting.
0: Well,
2: I think when he first started to perform live singing in his natural tenor voice, people were largely indifferent. So he said, "Okay, well, I got to do something here. I've got to um, come up with a unique style." And it took him a couple years. And he said he prayed a lot and everything. And so then, as he later detailed it, I think on the Tonight Show, he said it really started,
0: Mr. Carson, in 1949 when I heard. Back, even back in 45, the wonderful Manhattan merry go which was on NBC. And I used to listen to it religiously, right near the radio. I used to turn out the lights and have no one come in the house. And I used to hit these tunes alone. And I got into a dreamland where I wandered away as I heard the voice of Thomas L. Thomas and Bob Hannon and all the rest of them on the show that year. And also, uh, I, I said to myself, gee, I wonder, when I heard uh, Mr. Hannon and this other woman I forgot sing this duet together, And I said, "Gee, I used to re-enact these shows uh, in my bedroom," and uh, and so this is how it really started about. Oh, how I can show you what I mean? I'll show you. You got me, baby, I got you babe. I got you baby I got you baby
2: He then began to experiment with singing songs in the high voice, and he said that when he sang it for his parents and his parents hated it, he knew it was something he had to try in public. To accompany his new high-pitched falsetto voice, Tiny Tim
1: also began to develop a look and persona.
2: So he thought that he had to develop a style that was uh, that would complement the voice. And that style was uh, to grow out his hair long, which he grew out to be about shoulder length, which was a shocking thing for 1954. I mean, you're talking about, you know, you have the McCarthy hearings going on, and Tiny Tim's walking around the street in New York City with hair down to his shoulders. And then he started also wearing white makeup uh, because he said he wanted to do the opposite of what Al Jolson had done for blackface. He wanted to have whiteface. Ten years
1: before hippies began wearing long hair, and twenty years before rock stars like David Bowie began wearing makeup, Tiny Tim was doing both. He also began using very effeminate mannerisms and calling everyone Miss and Mister. Tiny's high-pitched singing voice became his normal speaking voice. And, to top it all off, Tiny also maintained very robust hygiene habits, often showering five times per day.
2: You're a
0: shower nut. Somebody said you. Well,
1: it's just I love to keep my body clean. Of course, it's
0: not the fact that the body alone has to be clean. The soul has to be clean first. And if the soul is clean, then the body can be always clean. But I love to keep my body clean afterwards, so that I can be, uh, you know, pleasant in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, 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 wherever I am, I love to keep the skin clean and nice for yes. these lovely, uh, wonderful girls. And <laughs> <laughs> all things gonna take wings
1: seem to like the way I'm doing things Going out west, Just like when Tiny Tim showed his parents his
2: falsetto voice, they also didn't care much for his new look They were already so frustrated and aggravated with him He had been kicked out of high school didn't have a high school diploma then you know, tried to go out into the workforce find jobs, couldn't hold down a job because he wanted to sing so they were already upset about that. So I think it just really it upset them even more. His father had a great quote where first Tiny showed him the high voice and his father said, you sound like a sissy. And then sometime thereafter, Tiny came out of the bathroom with his hair a little long and after applying his white makeup and Butra said, now he is a sissy.
1: Despite his parents' disapproval, when Tiny Tim performed with his new voice and his new look, people finally began to
2: notice. Some people were naturally weirded out, but people were certainly not indifferent. People stopped and they looked. And he remembered a quote from Rudy Valley's autobiography where he said, if you walk into a bar and people stop and look at you, then you've got something. And that's why he stuck with that. Even the
1: women that Tiny met, who never before gave him a second thought, began to notice him.
2: He even said, a lot of them cursed me in the street, one of them called me a witch, but at least they noticed me. It was all about recognition. Recognition to him, I think, was more important, whether it was positive or it was negative. As long as someone was paying attention, I think that that made him feel that he was someone who mattered.
0: If the world don't treat you right, come home, but don't come around that
1: Tiny Tim performed all over New York City, but the places where his unusual style fit in the best were the venues located in the neighborhood of Greenwich Village, the same neighborhood where Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and Peter, Paul, and Mary got their start.
2: So as we start to go into the 1960s, Tiny finds himself performing more and more in coffee shops and cafes and clubs in and around Greenwich Village, which is, you know, Greenwich Village at that time is a place where nonconformists are hanging out and um, people who would have been considered uh, abnormal outside of Greenwich Village were accepted as normal, you know, within that community and in that scene. So Tiny finds acceptance there, and he's invited to perform at venues there. One of those venues where he performed, I believe, as early as 1963, was a venue called the Page Three. It was basically a lesbian nightclub. I mean, it was mainly frequented by um, by lesbians. And I think most of the performers and wait staff were either gay and lesbian. And um, he was very much accepted by that group. And I think he was happy just to be surrounded by, as he said, so many beautiful girls that liked each other. And because he was religious and wasn't looking to connect with these women on a sexual level, it was sort of a great place for him so he could be around them, admire their beauty, be invited to hang out with them and go to their parties, but there was never really any uh, sense of danger in terms of his mortal soul. Tiny Tim was
1: still searching for his eternal princess, and at the page three he was surrounded by so many beautiful women who were potentially it, even if they would never return his affectionate sentiments. Tiny was overwhelmed by the sheer number of beautiful women and needed to find a way to express it.
2: In 1963, Tiny um, started a tradition of awarding a trophy to the most beautiful girl that he, you know, of the year, the most beautiful girl that he saw that year. And the first girl to receive a, a trophy was Miss Snooky, who worked at the Page Three. As I understand it, she um, had a missing tooth uh, in the front and would put a cigarette in the gap. But according to Tiny, she was still beautiful. And, uh, yes, she received the first trophy. That was in 1963. He wrote the Spaceship Song for her.
0: If I could drive a spaceship, dear, I'd take you to the stars. And you would be alone with me as we fly next to Venus and Mars.
1: It wasn't long after Tiny Tim began performing in Greenwich Village that he used the name Tiny Tim for the first time.
0: Now, your original name was what? Uh, Herbert Corey. Herbert Corey. But you've worked under other names, haven't you, before? At least one of the magazines said. One of the biggest names I worked under in the 50s, a lot of people still remember by that name, was Larry Love. Well, then I, my name was changed in 1961 by a gentleman who managed me then. Wonderful man. And then uh, it was Larry Dover at one time. Larry you know, Dover. In the early 60s. And then it finally came to Tiny
1: Tim. Performing in Greenwich Village gave Tiny the opportunity to meet a lot of people, many who presented him with interesting career opportunities. For example, the comedian Lenny Bruce asked Tiny to be his opening act. Wavy Gravy, a well-known activist and founder of The Hog Farm, invited Tiny to be part of his three-act show. Bob Dylan asked Tiny to be in a movie he was filming. Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary also asked Tiny to be in a movie. Tiny said yes to every opportunity, but most of these ended up being dead ends. Bob Dylan's movie was never released. Peter Yarrow's movie was a complete flop. Lenny Bruce was arrested and Wavy Gravy moved to California to hang out with the Merry Pranksters. Tiny Tim felt like his career was going nowhere. Then one night, while performing at a club in New York City called The Scene, Tiny met a record executive named Mo Austin.
2: Mo Austin was the general manager for Reprise Records in the late 1960s. Mo Austin went to the scene where Tiny was working in the summer of 1967, I believe, to see another act and ended up catching Tiny's act just sort of by chance. And he told him he wanted to sign him on the spot. By November of 1967, Tiny is in Los Angeles paired up with Richard Perry and working on God Bless Tiny Tim.
1: Richard Perry would go on to produce hit records with artists such as Carly Simon, Harry Nielsen, and the Pointer Sisters. But before he worked with any of those acts, Mo Austin asked him to produce Tiny Tim's first album for Reprise Records. Perry was happy to take on the project because he was already friendly with Tiny Tim. The two had actually met a few years before in New York City.
2: So Richard Perry and Tiny Tim knew each other here in New York, I believe they met in 1966. Tiny would go, he would make the rounds at um, music publishers, etc. And Richard Perry had an office in the Brill Building. And Tiny would just walk in and say something to the effect of, Hi, I'm going to be the biggest star in the world. Is anybody interested? And usually people would say, no. But Richard Perry said, yeah, sing me a song. And as Richard Perry later said in interviews, as soon as Tiny was singing, he lunged for the tape recorder. Started taping him in his office and started um, having Tiny do all the different voices he could do. And he just, he recognized Tiny's potential very early on.
1: Unlike other producers Tiny had worked with in the past, Richard Perry didn't treat him as a joke or a novelty act.
2: Richard Perry's approach to producing Tiny Tim was not to play up to the gimmick. You take Tiny Tim and you treat him as a serious artist. The instrumentation and the backing and the arrangement is serious. And that's why God Bless Tiny Tim and Tiny's records on a reprise are so effective. Because when they went to do God Bless Tiny Tim, Richard Perry teamed up with arranger Artie Butler, who arranged Wonderful World for Louis Armstrong. And they decided that they were going to arrange the album as if they were making the album for Frank Sinatra. And it's the juxtaposition of those arrangements with Tiny's delivery is what makes it so great.
1: God Bless Tiny Tim was released in 1968. The first single was a song that was written in 1929 titled Tiptoe Through the Tulips. The world's initial reaction to Tiptoe was mixed. Many people didn't know what to think. Most radio DJs wouldn't play the song. Some DJs played it as a joke. But amazingly,
2: the music critics and other musicians really seemed to like the album. When God Bless Tiny Tim came out, it was treated seriously by anybody who was really paying attention by critics writing for Time and Life and the New York Times. Not only were the critics impressed, but so were Tiny's peers. You know, uh, Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees said that Tiny was the most important artist that had emerged on the music scene in a decade. The Beatles praised him. I understand you met one of the Beatles.
0: Oh, no, they sent me a a telegram, Mr. Harrison did, from uh, uh, England. And they said, uh, do you have a guess? You're a gas. And okay. Mr. Uh, Lennon called up and he said, gee, he'd love to have me at uh, Albert Hall. Out there you're going to England? In September. You'll kill him. You'll kill him over there. I'll, I'll bet you you'll be, uh, you'll be a bigger hit in England uh, and get more newspaper space than you, you've gotten here so far. Well, it's all nice, but you know, life is a wonderful thing as long as you play it right. It doesn't matter whether you're a clerk or... Well, you're singing. Yes, it does. If, if you're
2: hard Just as the record was starting to break, they obviously wanted to get him some mainstream exposure. And very early on in the spring of 1968, they landed Tiny some guest spots on laugh and also on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, which provided tremendous publicity for Tiny and the record and the single Tiptoe Through the Tulips.
0: Would you welcome, please, Tiny Tim.
2: He brought down the house. I mean, Carson, who was notoriously quick on his feet, was completely stunned. I mean, you watch them together, and Carson is tapping his, uh, you know, pencil on the table, and they're sitting there in sort of awkward silence, and as Carson doesn't know what to say.
0: How are you? Wonderful, thank you. That. Uh... <laughs> That's the damnedest act I've ever seen.
1: Tiny Tim's appearance on Johnny Carson's show catapulted God Bless Tiny Tim to the top of the billboard charts. The album peaked at number seven, and the single, Tiptoe Through the Tulips, peaked at number 17. After over a decade of performing in small New York City venues and living with his parents, Tiny Tim was finally the celebrity he had always dreamed of becoming.
0: Now the beat that struck this town It has turned me upside down When the band begins to play I stop dancing
2: right away Tiny's life obviously changed uh, completely when he became famous. I mean, he was living in obscurity in New York, working for very little money as a scene by the late 60s before he became famous, living with his parents, unmarried, you know, not recognized outside of New York city. And suddenly he becomes the most famous man on the planet. I, I really think that for a period of time, he was probably the, one of the most recognizable people next to like the Beatles and Elvis, you know, in the world for a hot moment there, 1968, 69. Suddenly he has tremendous success. Um, Within six months of God bless Tiny Tim coming out, he's playing at the Circus Maximus room at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. Two months after that, he's headlining at the Royal Albert Hall at the behest of the Beatles and the Royal Family.
1: Tiny's parents, who just a year before had been fighting with Tiny about quitting music and getting a real job, they didn't know what to think.
2: It was a great moment, of course, and a sort of great moment of vindication for him because, you know, while he had grown up and all of his cousins were more successful and had better jobs, suddenly he surpassed everyone in terms of wealth, in terms of recognition, and in terms of everything. Um, So I'm sure he was thrilled. Uh, His parents, of course, were, uh, if you look at photos of them and read the few interviews that they gave during that time, they're, of course- Happy about it, but um, we're definitely sort of have this sort of befuddled and sort of confused outlook about the whole thing. There's this great moment after Tiny's wedding on the Tonight Show where a reporter came up and said to Tilly, Are you proud of your son? And she sort of raises an eyebrow and says, And why shouldn't I be?
0: Listen here, uh-huh.
2: Along
1: with enjoying the satisfaction that he had proven his mother and father wrong. Tiny was also enjoying show business's excesses. He began to spend large sums of money on a whim, like when he would order room service and have the hotel bring 30 banana splits to his room. Sometimes the banana splits were for himself, and sometimes he shared them with one of the many women who now adored him. As Justin Martel found out while doing research for Tiny's biography,
2: Tiny wrote about these women a lot in his diary. He detailed in graphic detail, everything he was doing with all those girls that were hanging around. In fact, in the back of the 1968 diary, there's a list, there's a page dedicated to each girl he fooled around with and exactly what he did with them.
0: Have you ever been to Las Vegas before? No.
2: Never? Do you gamble?
0: Oh, no, the Carson. But, uh... You drink? Oh, no. <laughs> How about girls? Oh! <laughs>
1: Almost like the classic image of a devil on one shoulder whispering in your ear and an angel on the other, the call to serve Jesus Christ and the call to serve Tiny's libido were in constant conflict, and both were becoming louder.
2: One of his favorite things to do was to lather these young girls in honey and lick it off. <laughs> then he would, of course, be very guilt-ridden after and would you know sometimes follow up these encounters with telegrams telling the girls he could never see them again. I think one girl who wanted to marry him, he lied and told her he had a debilitating disease and would be dead in a year or something, which is in the book. And honestly, uh, he later said, and it is detailed in his diary at the time, that really he sought to marry Miss Vicki, his first wife, to escape the dangers of sin because he saw what he was doing and sort of going out of control decided he was going to marry one of these young girls, so uh, you know he wouldn't be, I think, having sex before marriage.
0: I've met a lot of girls in every city. I've met a lot of girls I thought
2: were fine. Tiny Tim met Miss Vicky on June 3rd, 1969, in a watermaker's department store in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, Tiny was signing copies of his book of um, idioms and poems called Beautiful Thoughts. And Miss Vicky just happened to be shopping with her mother that day. And they said, oh, let's get, you know, cause some copy signed." And when Tiny saw her, he was completely enamored by her. And he, though he was supposed to give his trophy to the most beautiful girl at the end of the year, he decided to give one to Vicky in June.
1: After Tiny Tim had given Miss Vicky a trophy five months early, the two began seeing each other. Tiny spent as much time with her in New Jersey as he could afford, and when his career kept him away, they spent hours talking to each other on the phone and wrote countless letters back and forth. Finally, Tiny Tim asked for Miss Vicky's hand in marriage, and she accepted. The newly engaged couple announced their plans on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. If the marriage wasn't surprising enough, Tiny also announced that he and his bride would not touch each other for three days after the wedding and sleep in separate bedrooms.
0: You mentioned you were going to have separate bedrooms, and Dr. Brothers thought it is best to be close, and you brought up something uh, that I'm not familiar with. Now, as far as being separated is concerned, um, those three things will be done on the first three nights of the honeymoon. There will be no contact at all for those first three nights. And the reason for that is to put the Lord first in everything. As far as blessed events are concerned, I don't believe in birth control, and I do believe that as long as the good Lord wants me, there will be blessed events. Number three, uh, as far as having these separate bedrooms after the three nights, um, yes, I don't believe that SEX is the most important part of marriage. In fact, I really think, I really think, I really think, I really think that SEX is the least
2: important part of marriage. Uh, I believe Why are you spelling it, Tiny? So they were originally actually supposed to get married on Christmas Day in Haddonfield, New Jersey at Vicky's parents' house. But when Tiny announced the engagement on The Tonight Show in September of 1969, supposedly somebody came up and whispered in Carson's ear during a commercial break just on a whim, ask him if he wants to get married on the show. And uh, they came back from commercial break and... Carson asked, and Tiny said yes.
1: The families of the engaged couple and The Tonight Show began preparations for the wedding. The wedding dress and Tiny's tuxedo were meticulously selected. The stage would be littered with tulips for the newlyweds to tiptoe through. The limited seating at The Tonight Show Theater made invitations a hot commodity. Relatives, who purposely didn't invite Tiny to their own wedding because they thought he was weird, fought for an invitation. This wedding had so much attention that if it happened today... Kim Kardashian would be green with envy.
2: When Tiny Tim's wedding aired in 1969, December 17, 1969, it was then the highest-rated episode of Tonight Show. Carson wouldn't beat his own ratings until his last appearance on the show as host. Estimated between 45 and 50 million viewers, Con Edison in New York City had to flip extra switches to cover the, the power of all the people having their uh, television sets on. I think Chicago reported less crime that evening and L.A. reported less traffic on the streets.
0: Last night, dear heart, I dreamed of you. I dreamed
1: you were my own. Tiny Tim was never able to capitalize on the attention his wedding received. When he recorded his second album for Reprise Records, Tiny fought with the label over the artistic direction of the album. The result was a record that didn't come close to matching the success of God Bless Tiny Tim. In fact, none of his albums ever would. Tiny also found himself in conflict with his management team. The arguments led Tiny to replace his managers again and again and again. This management churn led to an unfocused career strategy, causing Tiny to miss out on a lot of opportunities that could have revitalized his career. But the biggest factor in Tiny Tim's waning fame was that his fans were beginning to lose interest.
2: So the biggest thing, I think, was oversaturation. Tiny came on to the scene you know, with tremendous fanfare, and it made a huge splash, and he was everywhere. And his management, I think not knowing really what to do, and that they were worried that it was going to be a novelty and a flash in the pan, went for the big money right up, right up front. So they put Tiny in Vegas right away. They put Tiny at the Royal Albert Hall right away. And within two years, he's getting married on The Tonight Show. And it's kind of one of those classic stories of, like, well, where is there to go, you know, butt down? I mean, he literally, he did everything. He toured the world. He was on every TV show. He had hit records. There was merchandising. And uh, they couldn't come up with Sort of another area for him to go after they had exhausted all the traditional outlets of what you can do with an artist.
1: Tiny never regained the spotlight he had at the end of the 60s, but he tried everything he could think of to get back in the public eye. He even released a disco version of Tiptoe Through the Tulips. As his career went downhill, so did his marriage. Tiny Tim and Miss Vicky divorced in 1977, but... Even as his career and marriage fell apart, Tiny approached his music with the same tenacity that he did before he was famous.
2: When things started to go downhill in the early 70s, he sort of very charismatically declared that he would, no matter what, no matter how broke he was, he would continue to sing, whether it's 10 or 10,000, whether they want me or not, Tiny Tim will be here. And it's with that attitude that he continued to persevere for the next 25 years. By 1996, Tiny was very sick. He had lived for about 10 years with diabetes that he had not taken care of due to his general uh, mistrust of doctors. So the complications from the diabetes led to congestive heart failure. And in September 1996, he had a heart attack at the Ukulele Expo in Massachusetts, fell off the stage. Doctors advised him that he should cease performing and retire. And he basically said, uh, if I can't sing, I'm dead anyway. So it doesn't matter. And he continued to plug on. On November 30th, 1996, Tiny played a charity event for the Women's Club of Minneapolis in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he was living with his then third wife, Miss Sue. Gets up on stage to do uh, a couple songs. He closed with Tiptoe, and he cut it short and sort of was wobbling and his. Wife came and grabbed his arm and said, "Are you okay?" And he said, "No, I'm not." And from there, passed out, went unconscious, and uh, he died. He always said, "To my grave, I will keep trying to make it again." And that's literally what he did.
0: Did you ever hear about the railroad rag? Toot, toot, it's a joyful day. See the train going round the curve. Mm, I feel that engine
1: swerve This episode was produced by me, Matthew Billy. Jason Silverman helped edit the show and created the Between the Liner Notes graphics and website. Laura Vandiver assisted with production. My thanks to Justin Martel for being my guest. This episode only covered about 10% of the information in Justin's new biography, Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim. So, if you want to know more about Tiny Tim, you can find Eternal Troubadour in most bookstores and online retail outlets. Justin Martel also supplied most of the music used in this episode. These songs can be found on the forthcoming Tiny Tim album titled Tiny Tim's America, Rare Moments Volume 2. Justin's record label will be releasing Tiny Tim's America in May of 2016. The Spaceship Song, Baby Shoes, and When They're Old Enough to Know Better, It's Better to Leave Them Alone, were used with permission from Richard Barone's record label, RBM Music. Those tracks can be found on the album I've Never Seen a Straight Banana, Rare Moments, Volume 1. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. You can find us at our website, BetweenTheLinerNotes.com. And once again, Between the Liner Notes is now a member of the Goat Rodeo Podcast Network. If you would like to listen to more great podcasts on the Goat Rodeo Network, you can visit GoatRodeoDC.com. There are lots of exciting shows planned for this network, and I will be talking more about them in the future. As always, thanks for listening. We'll talk more on the next Between the Liner Notes.
0: The Don't ever change, Tiny Tim. Just stay you. plain, Thank simple, uh, just as you are. Thank you.